0: church brothers and sisters of our lord jesus christ it is good friday it is good now this is a day that we speak of every sunday every lord's day every time we gather as a church and god didn't just teach us something god didn't just promise us something god did something and what happened that day was sweet And it has sweet and permanent and lovely and glorious and comforting and purifying consequences. Everything that you will ever hear at church, every promise that God has ever made to you depends on what happened that day on Good Friday. And so it is good to look at this event, to witness the events of Good Friday and that week leading up to it, it's good to look at them and to witness them again through the eyes of faith, through the witness of the Holy Spirit moving through men who witnessed these events, to hear God's own testimony of what happened, to watch them through the eyes of faith. It's, it's good to witness these events again through the testimony of God himself if, if you're a person who confesses to know Christ, you are content in a life of sin and willingly embrace sin. Drinking of the cup of demons, the Bible says. That's what drinking of and, and living a life of sin and just content in doing it. If you are such a person and still declare to belong to Christ, your conclusion may be that this is Christianity. Oh, friend, you must witness these events and see what God has done and replace your conclusion about the cross and yourself, replace those with God's conclusions. This is also true and good to do if you are a Christian who is wrestling with doubts, wrestling with assurance. I know the God of the Bible is real and I'm so sick of how wicked I am. So sick of my sin, is my sin really forgiven? Did the Savior really bleed for such a worm as I? When I stand before God, will it be blessing and loving affection, or will it be shame and curse and rejection? Will that little bit of hope that I have in Christ, will that be embarrassing when I stand before God? When he laughs at me for thinking I was made righteous for Christ by Christ will he reject me because I sinned or will I be welcomed with a shining and smiling face by God Oh dear Christian gaze at witness and hear God's own testimony of these events and replace your conclusions about your standing before God with God's conclusions and declarations about your standing with God and drink of that lovely assurance. And so we're going to read God's testimony of these events to replace our conclusions with his. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 26. And we're going to read Matthew 26 and Matthew 27. The events which saved the church. When Jesus, Matthew 26, Matthew 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could, this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor." But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12 and as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it broke and gave it to the disciples and said, Take Eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. Because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he, went, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, my father, Your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hours at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, And they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Have you come against me, come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you didn't seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then, those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Jesus was follow and sorry, and Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death, and they found but they found no one, though many false witnesses came forward. From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is it that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then it was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by, the son- by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them to the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even, a sing, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? Christ. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who's called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they showed it all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather than a but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put, on his, put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, 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 lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders heard it and said, this man's calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit and behold the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of your soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This is the word of the Lord. I want us to notice a few things here as we're considering if Christ bled for us. The first thing is this. This was God's plan. This was God's plan. And I wonder if you noticed that the crucifixion of Jesus was God's plan. Now, it involved wicked men and it involved wicked actions. But wickedness was not in control. The Lord omnipotent reigneth. This is the Lord flexing using the actions and plans of wicked men conspiring against his reign and against his anointed Messiah. He's using their conspiracies and wickedness to fulfill not their plan, but his plan. See, at the very same moment when God had ordained that a woman broken by her sin and overwhelmed by the forgiveness of Christ, at that very same moment that she's pouring out uh, she's pouring out um, uh, ointment and, and preparing Christ's body for burial, that's the same moment that the leaders are secretly conspiring to execute him. So whose plan is this? This is God's plan. The Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus, but remember we read they wanted to do it after the festival, after Passover week was complete, and the crowds had left Jerusalem and gone back to the countryside and all of their villages and towns and, and the tribal areas. They wanted to do this after Festival Week because they were afraid of the crowds, but their plan was accelerated by Judas approaching them and offering to sell Jesus out. Even during the Last Supper, which Jesus celebrated with his disciples, when Jesus announces that one of his disciples would betray him, Judas knows he has to act now. He has to act fast. And in John's testimony of the Last Supper, Jesus tells him, do it quickly, get on it, do it now. That was the plan from before time began. The one immutable, unchangeable, glorious, victorious plan from God himself, the son of God, the Messiah of Israel would be hung on a tree, God's plan. So dear Christian, if God was sovereign, and in loving control of even these most wicked and lawless events in history, if he was in control, in sovereign and loving control of the most wicked events in history for his glory and for his people's good, so too our souls can be at rest in the wicked and lawless and godless events of our own day, which are not nearly as wicked and godless as the actions which happened on Good Friday. They are not a pause of God's plan. He's not giving wickedness a temporary victory. He's not delaying his plan. This is God's plan, to glorify himself and to bring sweet joy and peace and rest to his dearly beloved sinful and weak people. This is no pause in God's plan. This is God's plan. And you will be put to great shame for banking on God's plans failing. And your shame will be fully removed one day if you now rest in the victory of God's plans. And that brings us to our second point. This was God's plan, but this was Christ's goal. This was Christ's goal. So brothers and sisters, when we think of Christ's death for the church, we may not consider the great loving kindness which drove him to the cross. It was his delight and joy to save the church his prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane, which we, we read, show his desire and goal is that the plan would be completed. Even though the way the plan, the way through the plan was not one that he loved, only a wicked man would look forward to being cut off from the loving countenance of God, and that was what would happen on the cross. And so Christ was certainly not desiring to be cut off from the countenance of God the Father because he loved him. But it was his goal that the bride would be saved. We read this in, in verses 39 to 44 in chapter 26. And going up a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the words again. Three times, brothers and sisters, three times, the Lord Jesus, terrified, troubled in his soul, sweating drops of blood, in agony, staring at the plan of God for the salvation of his people, and also staring at the results of the plan. Three times he expressed submission to the will of God, to the plan which he knew the desire and goal of Christ was the salvation of his bride, the church, the forgiveness of her sins, the removal of her sins, the destruction of her death, the crushing of the head of the serpent, the purchase of eternal life, the fulfillment of the law's demands against his bride. That was his desire. And if there was no other way to accomplish it than the cross, then he would endure the cross for her. And there was no other way to save the bride. Which was his desire and his goal. So he submitted to the cross. When Judas thought he was sneaking up on Christ by taking him by surprise, before Judas gets the pleasure of doing this, Jesus has already told his disciples to get up and begin walking toward the ambush. And Jesus seems to approach Judas and the soldiers rather than the other way around. How many moments, as we've read the trials of Christ, how many opportunities did he have the opportunity to defend himself? He refused to speak in his own defense. He acted as a sheep which is led to the slaughter. Though a sheep doesn't struggle... Because it doesn't know the plan. That's why the sheep isn't struggling. The sheep just doesn't know the plan. But Christ, the Good Shepherd, the Lamb of God, he didn't run from the plan. And it wasn't because he didn't know it. He had been saying over and over and over and over and over again the plan. He didn't run from the plan, even though he knew it, because he loved the goal. He loved the results. He loved the church. Peter pulls out his sword and he cuts off an ear of one of the captors and Christ says, put your sword back. If swords were needed, I'd call 12,000 angels and they would be happy to swing swords. And on the cross as he is mocked and told to save himself off the cross if he is the Christ, it was precisely because he was the Christ that he didn't save himself. For three years, he had proved if ever put on a cross, I could take myself off of it. There was no doubt he was able to take himself off the cross. He left no doubt after three years of flexing his power over creation. But it was his goal to save his bride. This was not because Christ could not avoid the cross, but because he would not avoid the cross. Dear Christian, he wanted to save you, and he did. Third point, this was God's sword. This was God's sword. We've already seen it's God's plan. It's also God's sword. Why is it that the cross and the death of Christ save sinners? How, how is that possible? Was it simply experiencing death that saved us? Was it merely God doing something loving? And then faith in that loving action is the test of whether you, you have to pass to get to heaven? God does this thing, believe he did that thing, and that, that faith is the test of whether you get into heaven. No! The church was saved because Christ was, stuck with, was struck with God's sword. Not Pilate's, not the high priest's. 37, 39, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written that I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now the sign that this was the sword of God coming down on Jesus, the sign was that it was not merely Pilate or the chief priest striking Jesus. The sign was that all the disciples would fall away. They would all scatter. Not going to happen, they said. And you might, I wonder if it's going to happen or not. Well, It did. When you see this happening, Jesus says, you will see this and you will know that it was the sword of the Lord. Jesus is quoting from Zechariah 13, Zechariah 13, verse 7. And if you're wondering, who's striking the shepherd? You read from Zechariah, God talking, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Who is the Lord commanding to strike the shepherd? He's talking to someone to strike a shepherd. Who? He's talking to his own sword. This is this imagery. It is the Lord's sword which strikes Jesus in such a way that saves the church. The wrath and damnation and hatred of God for sin the judgment which would be received for sin in hell. This struck Christ. God struck Christ. Christ himself in the garden before he was arrested, he prayed that the cup might pass from him. The cup. It's an Old Testament term which signified all the damnation. And wrath, which God's people deserve, it's sort of filling a cup fuller and fuller to the brim. And the Lord waits until it was full to pour it out. Like the sword of the Lord hung in the air until a sacrifice was placed under it to save the people of God under David's messiahship. So the cup of God's wrath for his people's sins waited. It waited until the Messiah would drink it for her and drain it dry. No more condemnation if you are in Christ. Why? Is it because God got rid of it? He just ignored it? No. Because Christ drank the cup of damnation dry for his people. And then to prove this publicly at the time of his crucifixion, the Lord brought great darkness over the whole land during the day, lasting three hours. That's another Old Testament sign for the wrath of God for sin. And at the very same time as, at the, as our Lord Jesus was crucified, so too the shaking of the earth, this earthquake that happened. This is the same miracle that God brought when he brought the law of Moses to Mount Sinai in the wilderness, to show the terror of being against God and breaking his covenant. And so every single observer who was present that day watching the crucifixion, every single one, they all knew that God was involved in that execution. No observer there denied that God was involved in the execution. The Pharisees were convinced that God was involved in the the execution. They thought God was agreeing with their assessment of Jesus. Yes, we think he deserves to die, so does God. Because they saw God was involved in the execution. Right, the Romans, the Romans seemed to think that God was angry at them for killing an angry man, right? Surely this was a righteous man. But Christ himself knew that this was God pouring out his anger and wrath on him, forsaking him. Which is why he says, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So it wasn't merely whippings and crucifixion that Christ endured. That would not have caused him to be in agony the night before. No, he knew he was taking the wrath of God for all the sins of every single person whom the Lord his Father had given to him from before the foundation of the world. And so, dear Christian, if you are in Christ, this means all judgment and condemnation for your sin is gone, and it is taken by the loving husband of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. Brings us to our fourth point. This was for the sins of Christ's bride. God was damning Christ for whose sins? For his sins, Christ was spotless. See, if anybody had motivation to find sin in Christ, anyone had motivation, it would have been the priests and the Pharisees, and they tried. He had lived a spotless human life for 30 years, and then for three years after that, he publicly is living in such a way that the Pharisees tried so hard to condemn him. They tried to find one reason to condemn him. They tried to find a spot spot some sin on him, and they couldn't. And they were very motivated to do that. And so God sovereignly, by his beautiful providence, he arranges that people who were motivated to find sin in him were given a public platform. And they were able to find none. They paid people to tell lies about Christ, but none could come up with anything that was plausible. Pilate, the Roman governor, finds him innocent. He can't find fault. His wife has a dream from the Lord. Also, this man is innocent. And so, brothers and sisters, if Christ had any sin, you would be lost. Because God demands holiness, and he demands sinlessness. He created humanity with a requirement to keep and fulfill his perfect and good and holy and lovely law of perfect righteousness. He created us With a requirement to keep that, a responsibility to keep that. But together with Adam, we fell into sin. And now everything we do is stained with sin. We are sinners who hate God and who love sin, our hearts, our actions, our thoughts, our desires. God's law shows this. And we're all gonna stand before the Lord one day with our deeds exposed our thoughts exposed, our actions exposed, our desires exposed. And if there's even a shadow of sin within us, we would be condemned. And if there was a shadow of sin in Christ, we too would be condemned if our trust was in Him. But He was found spotless, even by His enemies, Where is your spotless righteousness? The law of God cries out as your prosecuting attorney. Where is your spotless righteousness? The law cries out for justice and cries out that you have to keep it. Has it been satisfied? Are you right with God? Has what you owe God in terms of obedience has that been met? Is there a spotless robe that I can stand before God with because mine is filthy? Well, there is isn't Christ, Christ or God's actions while Christ was on the cross proclaimed that Christ was spotless. It's one thing for the Pharisees, one thing for Pilate to find him guiltless, but it's another thing for God. The graves of many believers were opened, and they walked out alive, proving their sins had now been forgiven, and sin finally. Punished. The temple curtain, torn in two from top to bottom. This curtain symbolized the separation between God and his sinful people from the Holy of Holies. Now, this is like ripped in two because Christ has taken his people's sin. So they can now come boldly before the holy God with confidence that they are finally covered in robes of pure, spotless righteousness where there's no chance of fault or or guilt being found. And so we boldly approach the throne of God because Christ was spotless, and he was punished to take our sin and cover us with his perfect righteousness. His enemies could find no fault, but more importantly, God could find no fault in Christ. And so dear unbelieving guest, Without Christ, you will face God's justice naked, standing exposed to a holy God who rightly demands holy righteousness. And there will be no hiding your thoughts and desires. There'll be no saying you didn't know, no foolishly saying you did your best, no covering up sin by better actions in the future, because you're going to see Christ's righteousness on that day And you're going to wail because you thought your own righteousness was good enough. Run to Christ in faith. Repent and believe before you stand before God on your own righteousness, which will be exposed as filthy rags on that day. Turn to him for salvation and be covered with his righteousness. Robes, believe on him and be redeemed. But, dear Christian, no fault can be found in your standing before God because it is on Christ's record and worth that you come before God. The events of the first Good Friday demonstrate that in great love and affection, Christ, according to the plan of God, willingly bore the wrath of God, not for his own sin because he had none, but for the sins of all who would repent and trust in him. Our conclusion is this. Did you die with Christ? When he died, was that your death too? Was it for you that Christ died? Did he die for such a worm as I? He died for all who believe, the Bible says. All who are united to him by faith. Those who see their sin and guilt and they see that they're enemies of God and they turn to be reconciled with God, who trust in Christ alone to accomplish that for them. That's why Paul will say that those who trust in Christ died with Christ. The old man, that old woman, died along with Christ on the cross. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I see my relationship with God, the one that I naturally have, the one I deserve, the one as a rebel, and enemy, and guilty. And then I see Christ's relationship with God, the perfect one of love and affection and delight and obedience and holiness, son to father, and I, I turn to Christ and I receive his relationship and I reject my old relationship, and that one dies. Colossians 3 verse 1 to 11. Here there's not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So are you still trying to enjoy your old relationship with God as a rebel? Still trying to keep that old man or woman alive? Or have you died with Christ? Did his death put your sin to death? Now, the old man is still going to keep trying to operate. But we need to look to the cross and ask. Whenever we're tempted to sin, we need to look to the cross and ask, was it for my sin that he died? Did I die that day? Then I will put to death my old self because I can no longer live because Christ lives in me. My sin died when the sword of God's wrath fell on my Savior who loved me and willingly placed himself under God's sword, that I might live as a forgiven, beloved son or daughter of God and be welcomed by God as Christ deserves for as long as Christ deserves it. And that is forever and ever.